Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We are starting into a new series, which I'm sure nobody's shocked about because it's a new year and it's time for new, 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 right? So here we go. We're starting into a new series. And really this morning, I had to even borrow a couple of verses from next week's um, passage because really I just wanted to use the introduction to this letter to have us spend some time talking about where we're going and why. So we're in the first part of the book to the church in Ephesus and we are calling this series Rooted and Established. But this morning, we're just focusing. See, we really didn't make it up. Paul really does say grace and peace in the intro of his letters, right? And so this is a way that he often starts off by sharing, uh, although remotely, grace and peace to these congregations as he still is helping to lead them and guide them even remotely. So for those of you who are new around here, I'm going to tell you a little bit about why we're doing this series and what my heart is behind it. And so it's not our typical diving into a full passage today. It's a little bit more explanation, but my heart is really passionate about this series. Um, if you're new around here, we are one of five Missio Dei congregations that is meeting this morning around the city. And one of the things that that means is that as a, um, as a staff, those of us who are on staff, we gather together with that the staff of all the congregations together every single Tuesday. We do that for reasons of accountability, of co-coaching, of encouraging, and uh, sharpening one another. And one of the things that we love to do is spend some time in the fall dreaming up new series for the new year. And we do the first couple months, and we decide which series we want to do locally. You know, everybody has individual stuff going on, but sometimes we find that God is guiding us through unity and cohesion and sermon ideas. And I'm no mathematician, but three of the five of us separately brought up going through Ephesians. And that's pretty amazing because we all do our separate brainstorming and come together. So I really feel sure that God is uh, bringing this to us. And I was one of the three. And now you're going to have to listen to my excitement about this because you're all stuck. Here's why. Number one, you guys, I love this letter. So as a quick reminder, these letters in the New Testament, some people call them epistles, that's just a fancy word for letter, these epistles are sent to help the early church to operate as they are new at this way of being the people of God together following specifically the way of Jesus. And now we have Jews who have come to believe Jesus as the Messiah and Gentiles, which is another word for non-Jewish people, coming together in ways that they did not before, all because of Jesus and what's happening through the Holy Spirit. So they're trying to figure out this new way of being the church together in their place and in their time. That's why we often spend a lot of time studying their context. We want to honor the space that they are in, uh, where they are in the world, where they are in time, so we can understand their, their situation and appropriately try to apply it to our context still today, because this is holy scripture. It is still able and longing to shape us, to mold us and form us. We want to understand their purpose, so we also want to study like the full arc of what's going on in a whole letter, even though we often just take a chunk for any given morning. We don't want to pluck out a pretty verse out of context and make ourselves feel good because we haven't looked at the bigger story. So we do arc 
and then we do deep in context, right? That's what we try to do. So a broad stroke arc of uh, the Ephesians book really fast. Part one, rooted and established. This chapters one through three are like an identity fire hose. It is so good. Who we are in Christ, and it's not just about us. It is all rooted in who God is and what God has done through Christ that we get to sit under this amazing fire hose of identity beauty. I love chapters one through three. Then we're going to pause because it's going to be Lent and we're going to do another series. But don't worry, then after Lent, we are going to come back to part two and talk about Paul's encouragement on how to live together in light of everything that he already said about our identity fire hose. So in order to go into part two after Lent, we want to really richly understand in light of this, that's what we're studying for the first part. What is the this that all of his living is in light of? That was an ugly sentence, but did you, you guys got it? That, I think my prepositions were all in the wrong place. Okay, so that's where we're going to be the next few weeks, rooted and established about identity, about us and who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you dig big words, I've got some big words for you. If you don't, just don't listen to me for a second. I'm going to tell you a story. When, I, when Gigi was in second grade, I was a helper in Miss Bradley's classroom. My job was to organize their chaotic second grade library. And so I was overhearing this teacher, and I loved this. Because any of you know that they do math differently than they did in the 80s? They do this like thing that's, I had to Google it to figure out how to help the kids. But Miss Bradley had this great idea. She was like, okay, if you use this way, face forward. If you use the other way, just turn around and don't listen to me for a minute. And then she taught one way, and then the cl class all swapped. And if you were learning the other way, you paid attention, and then the other ones turned their back. We're going to do that for a second. If you're a big word theology person, you guys, this letter is so rich. It is rich in ecclesiology, Christology, sanctification, trinity, pneumatology. It is so, but Paul doesn't have any of those words. I won't spend a lot of time on those actual words, but Paul is just pouring out huge theological truths and their implications in this letter. Now, the rest of you who do not like that and think that sounds like a lecture and it sounds awful, now you pay attention. You guys, this book is so rich with really cool stuff of understanding God's relationships with humanity. And it's beautiful. And it's an identity stuff, how we understand ourselves and Jesus' role in the world. It's really rich and beautiful. And so I love, I just love this book. So that's number one. We're doing this because I love this book and our identity is really important to us. It's so, so good. But here's number two. The reason this series was on my heart for us as we started into a new year has to do with a trip that I got to take with my seminary last spring. Some of you have heard about it. My mom and I went, Andy couldn't go. Um, and so mom and I headed off in the footsteps of Paul to Turkey and Greece along with my cohort and it was so amazing. And I stood in Ephesus. And as we studied and learned and walked and observed, I had a powerful awareness, just palpable in this space. Our worlds are not so different. 
So again, today is more of an overview than a deep dive into any given passage. So please allow me some space to paint this picture. And I promise this is not a trick to take you through my travel pictures. I am only going to show a few and Allie, I'll sort of tell as we go, just so you guys, I want to paint it so you can like feel the thing I felt. So give me a little space for something. Um, I want to draw some comparisons to Ephesus in the ancient Near East and Chicago in 2023. So little bit of space for this. So the first thing to notice on a map is that Ephesus is a, is a harbor town. And it's in this space where a lot of trading would have occurred. And it's kind of this route that would take you from Athens, from Greece, into Asia Minor. It's sort of like a, like a gateway kind of a place. It was a major trading town on a big body of water. So that's kind of familiar, right? I think also not only that, but like that whole trading thing, the thing that I've noticed, Andy and I have been a part of this community for about 21 years now, and the thing that we've noticed is that while, while we've been here and we, we stayed and raised a family, and many of you have too, Chicago is a city that people often have seasonal moments in, right? They come here for that first job out of college. They come here for college. They get transferred for a season. And so I feel like Ephesus is kind of like that. Like I'm here while I'm trading, but then I'm headed off to Athens. They were there, but not everybody was staying, which means it has impact beyond what you ever get to even know because the people get influenced in a place like Chicago and then go and they continue on with what they've taken. And you know, that whole exponential growth thing, right? Ephesus would have been a city like Chicago in that way. So we started up at the top of a hill and then we head down. And so um, there's this artwork that reenacts what it would have looked like. Sometimes, I don't know about you guys, I look at ruins and I'm like, that just, that kind of looks cool. I don't know what to take of it. Um, and so we, when we were standing up top of this hill looking down and they made this artist rendering. You guys, it would have been so bright and vibrant. And I don't know, did you ever like drive down by Grant Park and Millennium Park and be like, this city is pretty pretty. I mean, it's really a pretty city. And so anyway, it's like a lovely place. You can see the beauty. They were a cosmopolitan center in their area like Chicago is to the Midwest in some ways, right? Okay, so now in this picture, we see a road. Um, I think the next one goes down to this library. And it's, you guys, it's ginormous. And it would have been in the ancient Near East. It was like the third biggest after Alexandria and like Pergamum. And so, but that's a big deal because this not only is like, yay, we've got a lot of scrolls, but this is like, we are a hub of information, of knowledge, of new thinking, of thoughts. This would be sort of similar to some of our really well-known institutions of learning, of medicine, of commerce. That is sort of a sign of this, um, of their learned ways, right? So they, that reminds me of us too. But hey, here's the deal. Across the street from this huge, impressive library, there's like a little engraving in the ground that our, our tour guide explained, and I can't remember, I don't need to articulate it. It means basically turn to the right around the corner to find the brothel. And so it's like their version of a billboard, and it's etched in the stone for us still to see. So here you've got this hub of um, knowledge and education and being really, um, you know, fancy. And you just have their version of a billboard to sell sex as a commerce of lust. Right? Does that sound like any billboards you've seen around Chicago? Like that's really the same juxtaposition that we still encounter today all the time. Now this one, this one makes me laugh. Okay, so you see that statue to the right? 
now I can't prove that this was happening with this one, but this is just an image of what happened. So this is like the main street that um, has been un earthed. Okay, sorry, I lost that one. Um, and they would honor important people. They remember they were an honor and shame society. We talk about this, but um, they would want to honor people, but sometimes they needed to honor somebody new and they were kind of out of space on like the main stretch. So they just changed out their heads. And so they would just put the one that had the likeness of another person on the other existing body because it would take a lot of time. And I was thinking about this and I was like, okay, we talk about honor and shame versus irrelevance culture, but isn't that totally your 15 minutes, right? Like that's, I get that for us. You get your 15 minutes of fame and that's it. Like how quickly are you no longer relevant? So anyway, I thought of them with the headline statue for sure but then this last one oh okay here's another one I don't have a picture of this there were these amazing row homes and they were so opulent you guys you can't even believe the mosaics and they had they were layered they were like tiered they would be like a town home kind of like sideways you know they did tiered up the mosaics the frescoes were still I mean they were stunning these were clearly incredibly fancy beautiful homes and then right across the street they we don't know this for sure but there were these hooks that they believe may have been used to um to basically like leash your slave when you went in and did business and I'm not sure about that exactly they they did tell me that that's just conjecture but we know that there were slaves and we know that some people were not living in houses like that and the economic disparity sure does ring a bell still today in the the different ways that people were living in the same city very very different life that socioeconomic chasm that we experience in Chicago today didn't feel that different and then this at the facade in the next one this one makes me laugh I want you guys to look if this was very fancy and ornate that's all fine but look at what's inside the door if you go in the door like three feet back, there's a brick wall. So these were buildings that you would build to honor somebody coming to the city. This was a real one. I can't guess, name was Adrian, because we have a picture of my friend Adrian under it. Anyway, um, you build them a building. Like we are honoring you. Not like not a temple, not like a worship, but it was similar. Like here, we did a library in your name. So they built this building in honor of this guy, but there was actually no space for it. So they only made a facade. So and they did put a Medusa on it because this gentleman was afraid of snakes and they knew he wouldn't walk in. This is a true story. So they put that there so he would be too scared to walk in and they did it on purpose because it was only a facade. There actually wasn't anything built inside of it. So when this dignitary came to visit, anybody think of anything that has a false facade in our world where we sort of put our best pictures forward and we can live in a facade that looks really good from the outside but you're not it's really easy to stay that shallow and so I thought of social media with that guy and the funny Medusa head that's a little bit funny and so then we go down from that library and there's just a ginormous amphitheater just huge which just sings the importance of uh art and entertainment and culture but here's the thing that it reminded me of so it would have been much more white back when it was first built and it was facing out to sea you guys you would have seen this amazing structure I mean we saw it on the bus so far away the land has crept up it's not as close to the sea it used to be really you would see that from far away in the sea and I thought about when we would be driving home from visiting our family in Michigan and we would be like with the kids would be like look there's the skyline and you still have an hour left of drive do you know what I mean like that's like our imposing skyline that says we're a big deal you can see us from far far away aren't we amazing and uh just this huge skyline equivalent to me okay 
done with my pictures. I didn't even show you one of me and mom. See, I was so disciplined. I thought about it, but anyway, Acts 19 tells us the story of Paul's teaching in Ephesus. He had been there multiple times, but on this particular time, he was there for over two years teaching. And Acts 19, starting in verse eight, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, meaning he was going and speaking to the Jews about the fulfillment of Christ as the Messiah for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, meaning the way of Jesus. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And I have a picture of the Tyrannus lecture hall. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Do you hear that? That's that spreading thing. Like all the ones who lived in the province of Asia, this hub had this learning. And here's me, uh, our cohort. That's where Paul taught. That's the lecture hall up at the top of the hill that he went to every day. We see the courtyards where later on they went out and there was a riot because he was preaching and they had this big business around the temple of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, um, which was the temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it's nearby. And so uh, we, they dragged him out. They had this big riot and there was a, um, a clerk. We saw the building where the clerk would have lived to come out and say, stop rioting. We're going to be charged by the Romans for rioting. You guys have to settle down. All of this event happened right here. That's Dr. Lynn Coick, who literally wrote this book on Ephesians, who we were learning from as we were standing there. She's a wonderful scholar and historian. Um, so anyway, this is the moment. And when you're sitting there in the moment, you can be like, Paul came here every Every day for two years and whoever was cycling through would have come to just hear these new thoughts because that's what you do when you're you know in a town and as we were sitting in this spot as we were walking these streets I just had that thought like you guys we're not so different we're just not so different what ways of our world do we come up against as followers of the way of Jesus so for them, like I said, they lived in the shadow of the temple of Artemis, which is an incredibly, was an incredibly imposing um, temple. They have renderings. Now there's only one post left of it on site. Um, but they literally were living in this and they were considered, their town was considered like the, the guardian of that temple. Her influence was interwoven in their whole cultural life, including their commerce. So... Um, they would treasure her and the commerce that came through the people following her, right? So what are the things that we treasure in Chicago? I think it differs. I meet people, I know people, I am a person who treasures uh, comfort. I treasure, uh, or some people treasure like uh, achievement. Some people treasure, just there's different things, right? Like it's okay. We have to be willing to say what we treasure or we get to think we're so different from people who live in the, under the temple of Artemis because we don't have that. We're not so different. So like what are the things that your heart longs after and that you treasure in a special way? It may vary, but what do you fix your heart towards? Paul is talking to people who are in a world full of opulence and education, new thought, influence, idols, all of it. He's talking in that world. He's helping them to come against all of that in their radical decision to follow instead in the way of Jesus. And that makes them not so different than where we are. Our worlds are not so different. And so these words in this book are still so relevant and formative to the community of believers. That's why I love this book and I was so excited to dive into it with you all. I just feel its relevance still today. So 
slight pause, in case you didn't know. I absolutely love that I get to pastor, not as a vocation, like as a verb. If you use pastor as a verb instead of a noun, I love that I get to pastor. I get to study the word like every day. I get to sit with you guys and process joys and griefs of real life. And I love real conversation. I love to communicate about the love of God. I love sharing that love in community and having you guys share it back with me. I love, love, love. Part of what I do when I pastor is I talk a lot with God about stuff and I try to listen a whole lot about this community. And that includes where Jesus is guiding us in any given season of our life together. And sometimes when I'm having those conversations, I share about my insecurities with God, about I don't know if, if I'm doing this well or best or whatever. And a while back, I took one insecurity to God and said, I, what if I don't have anything new to say? Like Jesus loves us, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. I mean, what if I have nothing new under the sun? What if the vision I'm bringing doesn't feel fresh and exciting? And the Spirit just laid on my heart, Melissa, what if it's not about new? What if this is called to something ancient and timeless? What if deep is calling out to deep? And I was like, yes, I am in for that. That sounds like a great idea. That I'm in for. And so this fall, as I was praying into our new year, I felt that new thing again, that I need something fresh and new feeling that I get. And I'm not knocking it. It's January 1st just happened, right? We all get that. I love the fresh start feeling. That's why Andy and I have chosen to always live in the Midwest. We love four changing seasons. Every season, I'm like, oh, it's a crocus. Everything's starting new. Oh, it's summer. Everything's new. I get four seasons plus new year plus the kids starting a school year. I get six new years a year in my way of thinking. And sometimes if I'm missing one, I just count the next Monday as one. I do it all the time. I love fresh starts. I just love it. Um, so when I was putting my, my heart and my prayer towards where do we, in this fresh start, where do we put our energy to find ourselves actually marked by this way of Jesus? Not a flash in a pan. I don't just need some quick like, yay, that was a fun event. Like I want to actually see something tangibly flourishing in our community, in lives, individually and together. And yes, there's always yucky stuff. It's true. There is suffering. There's pain. There's grief. But what what happens when we're still being formed so that even in those moments, our lives are being marked with God's design as individuals and as community that would make our lives really living witnesses, even in suffering, loss, and grief? What would it look like for the fruit of the Spirit to still be born? Not any message focus on like success that the world throws at us or what should we should be after, like that little, even that little brothel sign. Like the world is throwing messages at what we should be after. But what do we want that would form us? I was thinking this past summer a bit about this, that like as we all came back together, and some of you are newer, we love that you're with us. I can just give you a little, when we started to come back together um, after being having to be remote for a while, I sensed there was such a hunger for real community. People would say, I want a place where I can say I'm not okay. I like that you tell me that you're not okay some days, Melissa. Like, I want to be real. I don't know if I'm okay right now. Let's be real 
still let's be gritty in this, this, this uh, hunger to connect with other people was so huge. And it formed us. There was a culture being formed in that. And what I started to feel was that that hunger was translating to a depth. And that's when I started this prayer to God. Where is that place you are taking us as we're gritty and together? Yep, we got that down. But like, where's the deepening that you would mark us in our living witness right here in a world full of false facades and impressive skylines? just like in Ephesus. What stands out to the world that is clearly longing for something uh, fulfilling? Something. How do we how do we press into that? And I can talk about God's love all day long, but what God, what would form us as your people? And once again, it was something ancient and timeless and beautiful and formative, as formative to the early church as it is today. And as I was praying, I write a lot when I pray. And so then I look back and I'm like, oh, that was, I'm just answering. They were seeing it. There were three things that came out in my journal that morning as I was just feeling a very fresh clarity on actual formative things. And the three things were this, that we would be people marked by Sabbath refreshment. We need those rhythms of refreshment, not as a break or vacation, but as being rooted in worshipful joy. People marked by Sabbath, people postured in prayer, the relational, consistent, intentional times of listening to and talking with God, and people equipped with the word, being formed and shaped by scripture's revelation of Christ, God's promises and character, and by the Spirit's movement throughout history and still today as we engage with this ancient text. So, it's in my journal. November 5th was the date. I went back and I found it. These were the things that God was inviting us to into ancient timeless practices of Jesus and the people of God who were following the way of Jesus. And we believe that collectively, if we were to devote ourselves to moving wherever you are today, wherever you are, if you could actually consider all those New Year's things people are talking about, I'll give it a go. If you talk about committing and moving the needle this much or this much in all of this. You guys, I completely and utterly believe in faith that God is intending to meet us and shape us and that this will have Ephesians-like influence in the people that you encounter through your week. But now here's the thing. These three collectively are vital tools to fan a flame of faith. They are not the fan themselves. The goal is the faith, living the fullest version of ourselves God has designed for us, which is the way of Jesus, impacting not only us, but the world around us, right? God's doing renewal work. We want to partner with God and be joining in as we're made more and more into the image of Christ. That's the goal. That's, I think of it like a campfire. That's the flame, living the fullness of what God intends in our human existence now. That's the flame, right? In which case, these three things aren't the goal. They're like the kindling, the lighter fluid, and that wonderful fire starter brick. Have you guys ever used those? They're my absolute favorite. That's what these things are. They're three different fuels that help facilitate the flame. That's what these are. Now, some of you are thinking, hold on, Melissa. Ephesians never talks about those three things. You totally just stretched right there. We are not talking about Sabbath. Paul isn't talking about, well, he probably does talk about prayer, but he's not talking about reading scripture. Like, I think you might be cheating because this passage is not about that. And it's true. 
This passage is not about that. This is about grace and peace and an intro into the section. But here's what I want to say about it. And here's where I can connect these two. Because I'm not after a flash in the pan. And neither are you. We are about changed lives. Like truly transformed lives because of the way of Jesus, right? And so if that's the case, what I think when New Year, when people are talking about changes and desires for an upcoming year, I want to press us into stealing Eugene Peterson's phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. And so what that looks like is getting our lighter fluid and our starter bricks and some kindling and saying what is not a flashy quick fix, but a long-term formation that actually facilitates flourishing. This is something that is an ancient, timeless practices of people following the way of Jesus. Now, why am I bringing these up in an introduction to the Ephesians church? Because like I said, they're trying to live out their faith just like us. They have different desires and agendas from the culture on what flourishing really looks like. But they are, they are living according to their faith, just like we're trying to do. And sometimes, yes, it gets messy along the way, and we'll learn about this. But when people heard them and saw them, and they would travel back from where they came, they had been shaped by this good news and a living witness of regular practicing faithful people who were being formed and flourishing in the way of Jesus. So the first part of this letter is full of fire, but one of the reasons I grabbed those three practices is that I know the letter isn't talking about the practices, but here's what the letter is talking about. And I think that we can miss it a lot. I don't know if you guys are going to be able to see this. So sometimes this is the letter to the Ephesians, just like copied and pasted from Bible Gateway. And I mark it all up to notice things as I read it, right? Can you see the, like the green highlights on all these pages? This is how much Paul talks about being in Christ, and our little prepositional phrase misses something when we read through it. It's kind of like with Christ or because I believe in Christ. And yes, those things are true, but there's something so much deeper than that, that in Christ means. You guys, Paul's language is so par participatory. I need to slow down to say that word. It is so remarkably participatory that he's actually saying to us that our relationship position is that we participate with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Christ. Not like along with Christ or because we believe in Christ. No, like we are in Christ. That's our relational position. And so he uses this language all over the place. And so when I think about this participatory language, I think we can sort of go past all of these in Christs and forget that this is not a static position. This is a relational participatory position that we have adopted through Christ. And so when practices are formative, all of our practices, right? Eating, that's formative. Exercising, what you watch, for sure that forms your brain thoughts. Who you're listening to, that's formative stuff. So all of these practices are formative. I was listening last spring uh, to uh, Michael Gorman, who's a scholar who I really appreciate. And I was struck that I had never really contemplated the participatory nature of what Ephesians is full of, being in Christ. Uh, uh, Michael Gorman says this, Paul depicts participation in Christ, which is participation in the life of the triune God, as inherently missional. It is inherently collegial, which means we like 
we together share responsibility and cooperative. So it's a whole like body of Christ, but to participate with Christ in Christ is to participate with Christ, which is to co-labor with God and others as partners in the gospel. His point, this is not a static thing. This isn't like, oh, I'm saved now because I believe in Christ and I'm saved from hell. It's not that static position of my standing. It is a participatory relational mission. Uh, He says that Gorman says again, those who benefit from this mission of God uh, are called to participate in it no matter who they are. Everyone is called to this participatory nature. And we see that, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are adopted into participatory nature. We don't lose our gender, our race, our vocation. It's just that we've been united in Christ and that's our most important identifying mark. And all of these are talking about participatory language. And so Paul's language in other places, he says, we are baptized into Christ into Christ, like that's our relational standing. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is participatory language time and time again. So this language teaches us to be on mission with God and with each other by participating in this mission of God, we become more fully human and more conformed to Christ. So my thing is that I can sit here and teach about prepositions and what it means to be in participatory language. And I think that that's important because in our English version, sometimes we can just pass this and think it means like now that I believe in Christ rather than thinking, no, positionally, I stand along with you in Christ. What does that mean? I can talk about that and it could sound a little like this, or we could give forward things that are saying, so like, what do we do? How can we respond with participatory language? And I think that that includes practices that form us. And so when I was thinking on that November 5th morning and writing and looking back, when my heart was stirred to these three practices, it was not, again, that these would be the goal in and of themselves, but it was that we would actually be expectant that the Holy Spirit would move the mark on our experience of the fullness of our humanity because we are engaged with the Holy Spirit through practices that do form us, that we would take Paul's language seriously and say we are wanting to participate in Christ. And so that's why I want to invite you to take seriously this invitation that God gave us through that morning to say, this can have bigger impact than us. I think a world is hungry to look for something fuller. And when they see a life that is having real and gritty life still, but is marked by a different way they ask, like, what, what is this thing? Because the way of Jesus is formative. It does change the way that we engage with the here and now, living in a promise of what is yet to come. This is why we're offering these things. I invite you to take seriously the first one, Emily's call to Sabbath. We are not going to be like, here's my January 8th sermon, now go do those things. We're really going to take the time and say, you guys, if you will say, I'll try. Just say, I'll try. And then 
I will, we will, as a community, bring spaces like these cohorts. I'll bring resources to help. We will share stories, God willing, of just practicing. We're going to start with Sabbath. In Lent, we're going to focus on prayer. And then we're going to go into scripture and we're going to provide tools to help you feel equipped in your own life so we can equip one another because we're all learning this messy thing together. But I believe that it's way more than a commitment to show up on Sunday mornings. There is formation that can happen every single day of our lives and renewal happens not just to us but through the world around us as we agree to the participatory language of living a life in Christ like Paul invites us to. Amen? Jesus, we love you and we thank you for an invitation that is so much deeper than I think um, our language sometimes can, can um, articulate. And Jesus, I feel uh, sort of fumbly in my words this morning. So I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will refine and cleanse and clarify anything fuzzy that I tossed out there. Um, But that you, God, um, that we would see the invitation in your love, the path you made for us in Christ that is not um, just a positional static thing, but it's a true participation. And um, may we respond in faith to what you, you continue to invite us into deeper and deeper as deep calls out to deep. We pray all this in Jesus' name as we continue to worship and praise you. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.